they were giving a $600 million fine, which at the time was a record. But guess what? Purdue, just in that year, made $2 billion off of OxyContin. So, you know, less than 25% of that year's profit they paid, which is a speeding ticket, the three, uh, I call them the three criminals, the three criminals pleaded guilty to misdemeanors. The company pleaded guilty to a, which is a long story in itself, but the company pleaded guilty to a felony. But what they did was Purdue Pharma didn't plead guilty. They had a shell company, Purdue Frederick, plead guilty. Because if a company pleads guilty to a felony, they can't do Medicaid contracts. Welcome back, everyone, to the Henry's Uncle Podcast. Today's guest is Ed Bish. Uh, When I first saw Ed's story, I knew he was someone I had to talk to. He has seen this epidemic unfold since 2001, the year his beloved son, Eddie, passed away from a single Oxycontin pill. Ed has fought since then uh, to hold Big Pharma and the Sackler family accountable for what they have done to our society. A truly incredible story, and, and I just want to thank Ed for all the countless hours of trying to hold these people accountable and what he has done since then. Please take a listen. Welcome back, everyone, to the Henry's Uncle Podcast. Today, I'm, I'm honored to uh, speak with Ed Bish. He's a gentleman I've, I've wanted to interview for some time. You know, I've, I've seen him in different uh, Facebook forums and in different rallies and, and you know, read, read his story through a couple uh, columns on the New York Times. And he's someone who has seen this whole thing uh, for 22 years now, you know, um, slowly just just happening. And, and he's seen it all. And so I, I want to interview him and just get his whole take on this and, and Ed, you know, like you to introduce yourself and, and how you got started in this, um, this, uh, activist role. Okay. My name's Ed Bish originally from Philadelphia, PA, and I'll start from the very beginning. So I was working in downtown Philadelphia, PA. I get a call from my daughter. She said, dad, Eddie's turning blue and he's not breathing. I was like, call 911. I ran downstairs. I worked in Center City. I lived three miles from Center City. I hopped in the cab. Hurry, hurry. And the uh, cab got me, dropped me off at the corner. I look up, and there's an ambulance sitting outside my house. And I was like, thank you, God. I run up the street, and I noticed there's two guys sitting in the ambulance. And... They looked at me and I looked at them and they said, sorry, sir. I said, what? Don't tell me he's dead. They said, sorry, sir. Nothing we could do. I ran in the house. My brother was already there. He stopped me from running up the steps. And, you know, so next thing I know, Eddie's friends are gathering outside Now, I had known him and his friends had a party the night before because it was it was uh, President's Day 2001. They were all from school. He was only a high school senior. And uh, I went outside and I was like, tell me, tell me what he did. They said he did an oxy. I said, an oxy? What the hell's an oxy? They said an oxycontin. 
what the hell's an Oxycontin? It's like a strong Percocet, they said. I said, no, no. My son's dead in his bed. And that is the very first time I ever heard the word Oxycontin. I went back in the house and I had my head down at the kitchen table crying and a police sergeant came in and he said, Oxycontin, kids are dying left and right from this stuff. I popped right up. I was like, what? Kids are dying? I never even heard. How did I never hear this? I watch the news every night. I read the newspaper every day. I said, you're telling me? And literally the first thought that went through my mind is we got to warn everybody. So that very night, we had a little uh, home office with a fax machine. And we started faxing the high schools in Philadelphia, warning about this new pill that if kids did, they could die. And that's that's when I started learning about Oxycontin. And that was in 2001. So anyway, so I wound up, we had a press conference at the local police station a few days later and was covered by every news channel in the, in the city. And NPR covered it. Then I went on a Sunday morning talk show and I was, you know, talking about this. And I had started a little message board. And by the time I got home, the producer called me and I had three offers for people who wanted to build a website for me. So, right. So the very first, I I said, well, who called first? And that's who I went with. And next thing you know, within within a week, we had a one-page website up, and it was called oxykills.com. I just wanted to warn, you know, everybody, kids, especially kids, because unbeknownst to me, you know, pill popping was getting to be a big thing in 2001. You, you know, you learn a, learn a lot of stuff in hindsight. Hindsight's 2020. But that... That was February 2001, so... And, and real quick, if I just put in perspective, you know, Purdue launched Oxy in 95, 96. So 96. this is very, very early on in the whole the whole epidemic is 2001. Yeah. Very early on. Well, the first thing, first thing we did after that sergeant told us kids were dying left and right, we went on... Google wasn't even around. <laughs> we, went on, we went on Yahoo. And we... we you know, typed in Oxycontin news, and we were we saw stories from Appalachia, from Maine, from Kentucky, nothing from the Philly area news-wise. But sure enough, you know, I'm reading about this, and so my education started then. Make a long story short, a couple weeks after I started my website, Purdue Pharma actually contacted no me. Through my website. And they they said, look, we want you to understand that our drug is a great drug. It's only when it's abused that it's a problem. So I said, I had no reason to doubt them. Sure, you know, I want to warn kids not to abuse it. I mean, it's FDA approved, right? Must be a good drug. Little did I know what I was going to learn. And it was, it was a slow process. But what happened in my neighborhood, here there was a pill mill doctor right outside Philadelphia that was flooding the neighborhood. 
and oxys were all over the neighborhood and because of this one pill mill doctor well they arrested this doctor and in august the very first congressional hearing on oxycontin was in 2001 i went to that hearing not knowing hardly anything but you know hearing stories and i uh, went to that hearing and in that hearing, Congressman Jim Greenwood grilled Purdue's president at the time, I think it was Michael Friedman, grilled him because here he revealed that Purdue had IMS data and they knew exactly how many pills this pill mill doctor was putting into the public. And he wanted to know why Purdue didn't say a thing to authorities. Well, Freeman started talking and then his lawyer, he started mumbling something and then his lawyer jumped in with lawyerese. You, you know, I, I, I went away from that meeting a little pissed, you know? Just gave me a bad, bad feeling. And then then sure, sure enough, so, so my, my website was getting bigger and bigger, reaching a lot of people. And one of the things, I, I was getting a lot of angry emails from chronic pain patients telling me how, you know, I'm hurting their chance to get the drug that they need and all. And I, I would write them back. Everyone who emailed me, I would write them back. And I would say, look, I'm only about the, I'm against the abuse of the drug. I'm not against the drug. I'm sure it's a great drug for you. So in the meantime, Purdue kept on contacting me and we had a little dialogue through email, maybe a few phone calls. And they said, if you ever want to do something about prescription drugs, let us know and we'll work with you. So one of the things I started doing, I started going around with the Philadelphia Police Department. They had a program called Heads Up and they would go to schools and warn kids about drugs. Well, they gave me the pill part, and I got to talk about pills, but they only gave me five minutes to talk. And, you know, they were talking about pot and heroin, and, you know, the pills were the most important thing, so I wanted to start my own programs specifically on the pills. So I reached out to Purdue, and I said, look, I'm, I want to... I want to start my own thing. And at the time, laptops were very expensive. I needed a projector, laptop, software. And they said, well, well, you know, we're willing to work with you as long as you just talk about prescription drug abuse. So I, I said, okay. I said, another thing, I'm thinking about changing my website name because I was getting tired of all these people saying OxyKills is a bad name, blah, blah, blah. So I said, I'm, I'm going to change my website name to oxyabusekills.com, you know, which, which costs a little money to do. Well, anyway, make a long story short, short Purdue gave me $5,000 to buy the laptop. No shit. And they said, once you, ch once you change your website name, we'll give you another $5,000. And I, I changed the website name, and I took, I took their money. But I was also learning more and more. 
So when I went up there, I actually went up to Purdue Farm in Stanford, Connecticut. They gave me a nice filet mignon dinner. Got to meet David Haddock, J. David Haddock. <laughs> so I, I, I said to him, I said, you know, one thing that's bothering me, I said, about 50% of my death and addiction emails I get are from patients who were prescribed OxyContin. And he looked at me and he says, oh, well, they must be doing something wrong because less than 1% of patients get addicted. And I was like, damn, am I hearing from the 1%? Yeah. You know, not feeling right about that. And and then I said, so he hit me with the less than 1%. So he says, so he says, yeah, you know, and all, all these overblown, exaggerated news stories are are really hurting patients from getting the drug that they need. So I said, oh, so sales are down? He says, yes, a lot. So I left that day uh, feeling a little uneasy, but I figured the good I could do with my program will be, you know, be kind of worth it. Well, anyway, so I started my program. I started talking it, started my own little thing going. Three months later, after I met with them, came out in the newspaper, OxyContin sales that year were up 43%. Right then and there, I knew that they were full of crap. I fired off a couple nasty emails to them that night. They wanted me to do some event in Philadelphia. I just didn't show up for it. And... Ever since I've been their worst yeah. enemy. Good for you. Yeah. One of their worst. But so that that was my introduction. So my website, which initially w- was all about just warning kids not to abuse OxyContin, soon morphed in to twofold: warn the kids not to abuse OxyContin, but also warn the public that this company is dirty and they're lying. So back then, at the time, Purdue was actually denying there was an epidemic, okay? So I found a lot of things out later. So I found out that Purdue would actually hire, they called them patient advocates, and they would hire, literally hire pain patients as contractors to troll the internet and attack anyone who spoke out against OxyContin. And who is who is target number one? <laughs> me. Unbeknownst to me, a lot of these pain patients, and then they were they were fired up by their their pain organizations, which it was later proven that Purdue Pharma was bankrolling. Partners Against Pain was a full Purdue company, but if you didn't, if you didn't really research it, you thought it was a, you know, a pain patient group. Advo- yeah, it was advocacy group by Purdue Pharma. <laughs> uh, so anyway, so they, they definitely influenced me at the beginning, but um, I, su- I soon caught on to their act. So anyway, so. So this was 2001. So the deaths, you know, produced the Niners epidemic. The deaths are going up. 
Uh, I'm following every story. I'm making contacts with all these parents. What can we do? We got to do something. So the very first protest against Purdue Pharma was by three moms, three Connecticut moms who stood outside of Purdue with signed pictures of their kids. And that was in the newspaper. And I read that and I contacted one of the moms. I said, that's a great idea. You know, so I had a bunch of moms and dads who wanted to do something. So we learned that there was going to be a Purdue sales seminar in Orlando, Florida at the Carib Royale, some big, fancy, swanky place. And so we planned on protesting. One of the original moms was with us, but she had to cancel at the last minute. So we said, okay, well, we got to call ourselves something. Why are we going to call ourselves? And we came up with rat. Relatives Against Purdue Pharma. So in 2003, we held the second protest against Purdue Pharma in Orlando, Florida, and we got press coverage. And back then, a lot of people didn't even hear of OxyContin. So, you know, it was all about getting press, warning people and, you know, the Purdue saga was still unfolding. And I, there's been 10 books written about it. If, if anybody who's listening, you got to see Dope Sick on Hulu or you got to watch Crime of the Century on HBO. Yeah, agreed. They're both playing and they're both worth it. Another thing that kind of covers it on Netflix is The Pharmacist. That's a story about an individual guy, who, but it, it covers c- produce crimes very good. And so that's three platforms and they're, they're yeah, all so good. So for me in 03, um, so let's see, my, my brother, he, uh, I'm three years younger than him. He, he graduated high school in 02, 03-ish, I would have been like a junior in high school. And, and then by that time I had two back surgeries. I had a uh, back surgery uh, end of my freshman year in high school and beginning of sophomore year. And you know, I don't remember ever, you know, I could be totally wrong. I don't think I ever was prescribed oxy. You know, I know, I know at that time I never heard of it, you know, up here in, up here in Oregon. So I don't know how, how prevalent the, the, uh, you know, prescriptions were at that time. Um, cause it seems like it goes from East coast to West coast. It, there's always a leg. It seems like East coast, Midwest, and then to the West coast. And then, you know, I'm just trying to think, you know, cause I, I, I you know, after my brother died and, and I researched all this stuff, I just go how lucky I was. You know, one, not, you know, I was probably just prescribed Vicodin. And I remember for, for me, though, it's always, you know, lucky I was young and, and the pain, you know, subsided within two days, right? Um, I was out running and jumping a week later, you know, it was fine and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, but I look back and I just think, you know, my God, and I'll go to the, the doctor's office, my doctor, and, and you know, because sometimes my back would just flare up for a week or two and you just, it's hard to move. And, and he would ask for something stronger. And he goes, no, no, just, you know, take, you know, take Tylenol, I'll give you, you know, four or five Vicodin if it gets really bad. You know, I look back at that, I go, I go, my God. So what, what Purdue was able to do with their lie that less than 1% get addicted and they, they encouraged the, um, having pain made the fifth vital sign. So they actually changed doctors thinking where your doctor, thank God he did what he did. 
They changed it, and it was like, if you don't give them a 30-day supply, and, you know, it's it's not just with OxyContin. Easily a 30-day of Vicodin or 30-day supply of Percocet could set you on the wrong path, but that that was common, and that was pushed because, oh, I you, saw you it. know. You know, I had a, sort of cut you off. You know, I had a friend, just, this was a decade ago, maybe a little more like between 2010-ish, 2011, and, and you know, uh, complained of migraines, right? And I didn't know any better. And and I went to the doctor uh, with her and, and the, I mean, it was right. And I, I, I remember seeing the doctor. I remember just hearing the words come out of his mouth um, that no one should be in pain. I mean, these were the exact, exact yep. playbook. You know, no one should be in pain. You don't, you know, um, you don't need to suffer. Here's a hundred oxy for the month. Oh my God. And, you know, little did I know some of the backstory, but yeah. in and, and, you know, that was a full fledged um, addiction, you know? Right. So did she wind up getting addicted? Oh she, yeah, she did. Uh, and, you know, so be, you know, before I knew her, she was already in, in that uh, mental state of mind. And, uh, you know, because of that and, and um, which then turned into, you know, this doctor, um, you know, prescribing her fentanyl patches later on down the road and blah, blah, blah. And, and you know, unfortunately, you know, smart as a whip 4.0, um, come out of high school, go to a great college, you know, ends up dying at age of 26. Uh, it's, that's horrible, but her story yeah. is common. So I talked to so many, my website's no longer around, but before it went away, it had over a million unique hits. No kidding. Wow. That's so, amazing. I mean, you know, everything was about getting the word out and warning people back then. You, you know, right. So, like I said, there's 10 books written about it. Dope Sick. The book is great. The latest book is called Raising Lazarus from Beth Macy. That's a continuation. Empire of Pain by Patrick Radden Keefe. That came out last year. You know, I used to get overwhelmed trying to explain this to people like you. Well, you you know, but if you met someone who really didn't know, and now I know why. It took it took Dope Sick the miniseries eight hours, and they did a fantastic job explaining it. Yep. But it, it took eight hours. Yeah. <laughs> and that 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 pretty much only goes up to two thousand seven. So let let me jump ahead. So in the meantime, so we did a couple more protests, rap. We started to go to the FDA. One of our rap members actually went through the this big process of filing an official FDA petition to have Oxy reclassified for severe pain only. 2003, the very first book about Purdue came out called Painkiller which is actually being turned into a Netflix show, which should end the end of the year or beginning of the year, which will be another good one like Dopes. So 2003, their crimes were known. So uh, I forget what year I started to hear rumors about this investigation about Purdue Pharma. And sure enough, this is what Dope Sick is all about in in. Uh, the Southern District of Virginia, they took up the case against Purdue, and it took them four years to build a case. They had an airtight case. The lead prosecutor, who I'm friends with now, Rick Montcastle, 
he wrote a 120-page prosecution memo detailing their crimes, asking for felony prosecution. Got sent all the way to the very top of uh, the DOJ, and they sat on it. They would not let them prosecute for felony charges. So 2007, instead of felony charges, which would have sent a strong message and pretty much curtailed opioid epidemic there, instead they were giving a $600 million fine, which at the time was a record. But guess what? Purdue, just in that year, made $2 billion off of OxyContin. So, you know, less than 25% of that year's profit they paid, which is a speeding ticket, the three, uh, I call them the three criminals, the three criminals pleaded guilty to misdemeanors. The company pleaded guilty to a, which is a long story in itself, but the company pleaded guilty to a felony. But what they did was Purdue Pharma didn't plead guilty. They had a shell company, Purdue Frederick, plead guilty. Because if a company pleads guilty to a felony, they can't do Medicaid contracts. Mm. <laughs> so wow. they they put up a, a, a shell company. Jeez. Yes, it, it was, you, you, you know, we, we wrote letters to the judge. I was able, 19 of us, many of them rap members, were able to give a one-minute victim statement. And it was powerful. And we begged that judge to give him jail time. When he spoke, he was actually apologetic. That he said he had to go by the guidelines. Yes, the plea deal. Okay? Well, we didn't know about this 120-page memo. The judge never saw the 120-page memo asking for jail time. It was sat on by... The very top of the DOJ, some people think it was the deputy attorney general. What happened? Purdue Pharma hired Rudy Giuliani yeah. to lobby. They hired Mary Jo White, who still works for them. She was the head of the SEC at one point, former uh, top prosecutor. And they got them to sit on this, and that decision literally cost hundreds of thousands of lives because if they were given jail time in 07, like I said, I would have sent a strong message to all the other companies. Instead, it gave them a green light. Purdue, another thing that they got in that deal, they got immunity for any crimes up until 2007. So then they, then they signed this corporate integrity agreement. So pretty much promising, okay, we're, you know, we ain't going to do this, blah, blah, blah. Well, in 2020, they pleaded guilty again to almost the same crimes. And again, so far, they're just hit with a fine, okay? It came out that Richard Sackler, the true mastermind behind OxyContin and Purdue, he never even read that corporate <laughs> corporate agreement that Purdue signed. 
So that's what they thought about that. And all the other companies, which is detailed in the book you're reading now, American Cartel, that's another book that goes beyond Purdue. But all these other companies saw that they got a speeding ticket and they put the pedal to the metal. And none of them, none of them, the total disregard for human life and the pain and suffering, you know, it's, it's, as you know, it's not just the people who die, it's the people left behind. Exactly, exactly. And so many people, and I said all along, I said, nothing's really going to happen until enough people are affected. And sure enough, eventually it got to that point. It took the government 15 years, 15 years to really crack down on OxyContin and, and get it under control, which which also had unforeseen circumstances. And, and like I said, there's all these shows covered, books covered. We don't have enough time to go into it all. But <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's truly, it, it's truly uh, you know, you watch these shows and you say, you know, WTF, WTF. And I'll tell you, some people thought they knew about it or they didn't re- or they knew they didn't really know about Oxycontin and they watched the show Dope Sick because I'm all over social media and all say the same thing. How are they not in prison? Which brings me so, you know, I'm skipping a lot of years. So at one point in uh, 2010, Purdue came out with a new supposedly uh, abuse-proof oxycontin, which really wasn't abuse-proof, but it 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 was it was harder to abuse. But y- you know, they had that technology for years. Why why did they come out it come out with it in 2010? Because in 2011, the patent for the original oxycontin was set to expire. And what a lot of people don't talk about, so Purdue spent 10 years denying, first they denied there was an epidemic, and they denied there was a problem with their drug, right? So in 2010, generics wanted to make, when the patent ran out, or 2011, when the patent ran out, they wanted to make generics OxyContin. Purdue actually testified that OxyContin, the original OxyContin, was too dangerous to let these companies. So they went from 10 years of denial, denying stuff people like me were saying, and doctors and coroners, denying it, and then they actually started saying it. And to me, not that should be more of a big deal. I mean, if anybody has any doubts how criminal that company was just what they did and then sure enough sure enough they got generics turned down so boom they had the new oxycontin they got the patent and uh after that i i was burnt out i i needed a break and i got away from it the news stories started to die down and you know it was it was just um, unbelievable. We tried everything, or I tried everything, and I got away from it for a few years. Then in 2018, Massachusetts filed a lawsuit against the Sacklers themselves. But more importantly, the lawsuit was made public on the internet. 
I read that lawsuit and I almost jumped down my seat. And if anybody wants to look at it, you just Google the Massachusetts lawsuit against the Sacklers and the details of the crimes in there. It's like, oh, my God, they got them. They got them. So I said, I got to get back. I got I to gotta get involved. So I called up some old rap members, some of them who, who were still involved. And, you know, we were we were all elated. So that Massachusetts lawsuit spurred next thing you know there's 2600 lawsuits purdue files for bankruptcy i see the headline oh great finally that 30 companies out of business i start reading the article they're going to file bankruptcy and they're going to and the sackers are going to donate some money toward it but only if they get civil immunity as soon as i read that I knew this was a total scam. It was all about, it's always been about protecting the Sacklers. And, you know, then more stories came out that up until 2007, the Sacklers took over like $100 million out of the company withdrawals. After 2007, when they knew they dodged the bullet, over the next few years, they took $10 billion out of the company. And a lot of it they sent offshore. And this is documented. And, you know, they, they play the long game. They play the long game. And so I I knew as soon as I saw this that they they were demanding. They weren't requesting. They were demanding. We'll do this only if we get civil immunity. And uh, so I wound up getting involved in the lawsuit and and that's covered in raising Lazarus. If there's any legal legal eagles out there who really want to know about this Purdue bankruptcy scam, Ryan Hampton wrote a book, Unsettled. He was actually the chair of the official official unsecured creditors committee. He tried to do what he could do for victims, and it he saw it was so stacked that he actually resigned in disgust. And originally he was going to write a book about the Sacklers. But when he saw what this bankruptcy scam was really about, he made it about the bankruptcy. And, uh, you know, I got involved and bankruptcy is boring, right? (laughs) Yeah. John Oliver said it the best. If you want to do something really evil, rapid and boring. And sure enough, that's what they did, and that that's still playing out. So the Sacklers, <laughs> to make a long story short, bankruptcy laws have been exposed. So the Sacklers got the, they call it judge shopping. Pretty much, they got to pick the judge they wanted to try their case. It's a loophole in the bankruptcy system, which has been exposed. So they, they, they're based in Stamford, Connecticut. Well, they declare bankruptcy in White Plains, New York, where they conveniently opened a one-room office. And sure enough, so the judge they picked, Judge Robert Drain, who had a reputation of very pro-corporation. And I listened I listened to every hearing. And at one point, I, I said to someone, I said, listen, 
if I didn't know who was speaking, I would think that was a Purdue lawyer. Yeah. It was, yeah. It was the judge. He gave them everything they wanted. Signed the deal. At the start of the trial, we went up to White Plains, New York. Nan Golden was there. I was there. Alexis Plus was there. A lot of activists were there. It was covered on the news just to, just to raise awareness. So, no, you know, we knew what was going to happen. The judge gave them what they wanted. Well, guess what? It was appealed. We also had a pro bono lawyer, Mike Quinn. Purdue's lawyers bill $1,800 an hour. They have paid almost $1 billion just in this bankruptcy to their lawyers, okay? We got one lawyer working for us for free. Well, when he would make arguments in court, the judge would ridicule him, literally ridicule Jeez. him. Well, guess what? It went to the appeals court, and the appeals judge, she said a lot of things Mike Quinn said, and yeah. she overturned it. No she kidding. overturned. Right. So now, obviously, so Purdue appealed that, and right now it's in the Second Circuit. And if Purdue loses this, they'll probably go to the Supreme Court. The DOJ has a wing for bankruptcy. The U.S. trustee is called, but they're actually part of the DOJ. And they're saying, you know, this is illegal what, what the Sacklers and Purdue lawyers tried to do. So, so who knows? But the bottom line is it was overturned by an appeals judge who actually said a lot of the things that our lawyer and we were saying, and we're nobody, you know, our lawyer's somebody, he's David, they're Goliath. And uh, that's covered in the book, Raising Lazarus. But right now the jury's still out and we'll see what happens. But the signed deal, the victims got screwed. So I lost my son, Eddie, Eddie went to a party, took an Oxycontin, went to sleep, never woke up, never had a prescription. So the fact that he never had a prescription, I'm either going to get $3,500 or zero. Either way, not even enough to cover his funeral. Most of the victims are going to get the highest amount anyone, any single person can get is $48,000. That's if you're prescribed it, you're dead. And, and you know... And the thing is, the people, I, I filed my own lawsuit. I didn't mean to use a lawyer. But the people who use the lawyer, 25 to 30% plus expenses. Yeah, it's so, expensive. You know, the, the victims in the end, and like I said, the book Unsettled by Ryan Hampton goes into detail because it's wrapped in boring because that's the way they want it. They're playing the, they're playing the long game. Dragging it out, dragging it out. So let, let me get you. So so after Dope Sick aired, I actually, Rat, held a protest outside the DOJ in Washington, D.C. So Danny Strong and Beth Macy, who created Dope Sick on Hulu, they came, they showed up, they spoke. Not only did they, well, Beth didn't speak. Danny Strong gave a great speech. But Rick Montcastle, the prosecutor from 2007, 
came. He spoke. Paul Pelletier, a financial prosecutor who was involved in the background in 07, he spoke, pretty much begging DOJ to follow the money. Just follow the money. So one of the things we were trying to do, we had sent three letters to the DOJ requesting a meeting. While I was standing outside the DOJ, talking in the microphone, I got a text from my lawyer, our lawyer, Mike Quinn, that he heard from the DOJ and they were going to meet with us. So sure enough, it took three months. We met with the DOJ on the Zoom, and, you know, I knew they, they weren't going to say nothing. But we, we were able to speak our piece, and, you know, who knows? The, the jury's still out. People think that Purdue and the Sacklers have gotten away with this, but it's, the door is not closed. And so just this week, I'm going to be on social media. I've done this before. I'm going to ask people to send an email to DOJ, tell them their story. Even if they're not affected, if they saw Dope Sick or read any of these books, send a letter, speak your piece, you know? Yep. Well, I'll, I'll definitely do that. Let, let your opinion be known. This is not a done deal. And until they tell me, no, we're never going to prosecute them, I'm going to keep on pushing for it. It's no vendetta. It's, it's, it's just like follow the money because I'll tell you what, not only with Purdue, other companies, as you may have heard, there's been $40 billion. I call it blood money. So over the years, government watched this happen more or less. And your brother paid with his blood. My son paid. Hundreds of thousands have paid and hundred more millions have suffered okay so so these companies made blood profits so the government instead of holding anyone accountable their answer is to fine them <laughs> so to give them blood fines but the victims ain't getting none of that money it's gone to the states and they say oh, well we're going to we're going to use this to abate the opioid crisis to really do it, it would take trillions. But, you know, and then, and then each, this is a whole nother, nother mess. So my point is, without anyone, without any true justice and any, anyone being held accountable through a criminal prosecution, this is just going to happen again because all these companies... All these companies, even the ones that are going to give a billion dollars, they made 10 billion, hundreds of billions. It's a speeding ticket to them. You know, when the when Johnson and Johnson announced their big settlement, so there's a big settlement. The biggest one announced was $26 billion. That's a lot of money, right? But the three major companies involved in that, the day they announced it, all three of their stocks went up <laughs> because to them it's 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 nothing what they should be paying so some, something like this is going to happen again without justice and it's billionaire justice just pay pay a fine well guess what if you're going to pay a fine 
they should be paying the 12, 13 billion in profits that they had. Not a portion of that, but no, you know, do the crime, give us some money back and everything's good. No, it shouldn't be that way. You know, it's, it's really sad. You know, you, you see 20, almost 30 years now of this happening and, and you know, like for us up here in Oregon, right? You, you walk downtown Portland or just in the Portland metro area and, and you see, you see the, the long-term effects of, of, you know, what's been going on for so long. And now it's been coming to light the last, you know, say five, seven years because, you know, not only have people, you know, have been devastated, but, you know, because of addiction, they have lost their, their homes and, and they're on the streets and stuff like that. And, and so you start seeing it there. And, and after my brother died, you know, it takes a totally different view you know, you have a totally different lens of, of what's happening around this whole nation. And, and you see people, you know, we, we don't have enough detox centers here in, in Oregon. And you hear people just, you know, you know, lining up for so for many weeks. problems. So I, yeah. was just, I was two weeks ago, I was in Washington, D.C. One of the groups I got involved with is called the Lost Voices of Fentanyl. Yep. Yep. So, so they're on Facebook and most of their kids, most, most of these people, they lost their kids within the last couple of years, but April Babcock, the leader of lost voices of fentanyl. When I told her my story about the first time I heard Oxycontin, she said, Ed, so many people in my group are living what you lived. The first time they heard the word fentanyl, their kids were dead from it. And wow, it, it just tempted me. So I've I've been supporting them. Like I said, I went to Washington. I was able to speak a little. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. But, but you got a lot of people trying. And as more and more get affected, at, that's... You know, it's going to take something big. I mean, this is this is so huge. And I remind them, I, and I am also the reason why I'm involved. I want to remind, don't ever forget that this would not nearly be as bad if not for what Purdue Pharma did. They were the architects of the opioid epidemic. Literally two generations going on three generations were exposed to easy opioids, whether it was all over the streets because of the pill mills, you know, for years. Like I said, Purdue knew exactly how many pills these pill mills were putting out. They never told the authorities about them. One of the first and biggest pill mills was in South Carolina. There was a seven-doctor practice busted as a pill mill. Purdue made the conscience decision to pay their reps the bonuses that year for these pill mill doctors because they wanted to send a message to the sales force. Sell, sell, sell. Yeah, exactly. Hey, hey, Ed, real quick, I got a question for you. You know, um, you know a few minutes ago, you mentioned your son. He was uh, 18 at the time, correct? When yeah. Asked. Yeah. And... You know, he he was at a party with friends, took a pill, right, and ended up dying. And, you know, so many parents I, I see on social media especially is that they are afraid to speak out because when you do, you, you start getting comments, you know, hateful comments, et cetera. Uh, you know, you, you know, you're you're you know, you should have had better parents or you should have been a better oh, parent yeah. or or yeah, you, know, you know, you've been you've been doing this now for twenty two, you know, twenty one years and and you've you know, you've been 
advocating for for so many people and and we thank you for that you know this is for the parents what do you what do you say to them because for, i mean personally for me it doesn't bother me because they're not in my shoes what do you say when i first started speaking out and like i said unbeknownst to me i had paid chronic pain advocates attacking me i heard it all just ignore it ignore it you can't reason with some of these people I tried in the beginning, and what I eventually did, I wrote up, I can send you an email I have from 2003, which I call it a canned email. Somebody who wrote me or tried to defend Purdue or OxyContin, I would just copy and paste this email, and then I was done. But yeah, so some people, and, and you know, these fentanyl parents are trying to, save other people's kids they're getting they're getting uh you know some hate mail from there's there's just some a-holes out there yeah exactly you know the best thing to do is ignore it don't engage back then there was no blocking now you can block (laughs) (laughs) i mean back then but i just thought if someone i knew was an a-hole and he sent me and I sent him a reply and he replied again. Well, guess what? I just deleted it. I didn't even I didn't even read it because I ain't gonna change their mind. They sure as hell ain't gonna change my mind. Yeah, you know, Eddie, you know, you posted a photo, I believe it was you, you know, a few days ago. You, you I believe you went to the uh I'm gonna get the name wrong here. The the, the is it the trail of uh Trail of Truth. The, yeah, the Trail of Truth. And you know, it, it looks like it was outside uh it's in DC outside, is it in the in near Congress? Yeah, it was it was near it was in Union Square, which is on the mall, and it was between Capitol Hill and um, Washington Monument. Yeah, you know it's it's amazing where you know you, and, they, and they put up little you know uh, headstones right through the grass and whatnot, and have a picture of their of their children or parents' faces. Um, and and uh, know, we had their... over a thousand tombstones there. Wow, tombstones! Thank you. That's amazing. And, you know, and you see the photos, and you just kind of zoom in on them. And, you know, the, the years, right. You know, I was born in 86 and, and, you know, you see kids who are, you know, born in 93, 94, 2002, you know, and, and, you know, it, it must, it must hit you now where it, you know, your son passed away in, you know, 2001 and, you know, and now you're seeing kids who were born in, you know, 05, 06, 08, you know, who, who have passed, you know, whether it's due to opioids uh, or, you know, like, uh, like Oxy or, or whatever, and then, or, um, you know, illicit fentanyl now. It just, Oh, it's, it's so sad. In 2001, I think it was around 14,000 people that year of an overdose. Now, last year it was a hundred thousand, but now you new a new wrinkle. Not only are there overdoses, there's poisonings because you've got kids buying an Adderall to study for an exam, and it's a fentanyl pill. That is an out-and-out poisoning. You got some kids nervous, whatever, they buy a Xanax. It's a fentanyl pill. That is a poisoning. So over 100,000 overdoses and poisonings. And, you know, that that's where we are, and it's going to take drastic change to get a hold of this. Government... The government moves so slow. Took so slow. 15 years. 15 years to reign in Purdue Pharma. 
I mean, what, what frustrates me the most about this whole thing is, is, you know, one, how slow they move, but you, know, you saw big tobacco, right? And, and when that whole thing went down and you saw the amount of awareness campaigns that went out and all of a sudden, you know, you get, you get, um, you know, smoking ban from bars, you know, cause of the secondhand smoke, all this stuff. And then, you know, now it went from, you know, growing up in the nineties where you, you'd regulate, you know, for me seeing the, uh, the, uh, you know, Marlboro, you know, Marlboro magazines coming to your home and, 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 you know, having Joe cool, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, Hey, buy a pack of cigs and you get this many points to, you hardly see people smoking cigarettes anymore. And for me, it's, you have 110,000 deaths right now per year. How is there not, you know, a, a type of operation warp speed, right? You know, same as we had for COVID. Uh, it, where- exactly. The really battle fentanyl, they need a, a COVID type response. And unfortunately, until enough people are affected, we're not going to. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and, you know, people like me, I mean, people like you, it's a life sentence. We might out. But if we don't speak up, who else is going to do it? And with all these fentanyl parents, they're trying to save their kids are gone. And, you know, too many 13, 14 year old kid took a Percocet. It wasn't a Percocet. It was a fentanyl pill, you know? Yeah. I mean, my brother, he, you know, he thought he was taking a Oxy 30. Uh, He got a hold of, it it was all counterfeit. This was 2018. And yeah. And I had no idea, you know, illicit fentanyl was in the, in the supply. And, and the coroner told me um, he had anywhere between 40 to 400 times the therapeutic amount of fentanyl wow. in the system. And I was going, what, from, from a pill? Yep. You know, because I, again, I, I didn't know the, you know, all the, the balance of it, right? You know, how much, you know, fentanyl, you know, how little fentanyl can kill someone. And it just, I was just stunned. I was absolutely stunned. And, you know, and he, again, he started off, his buddy, uh, was you know he had injuries from college football for, this is the story i was told and he had a ton of oxy from from their doctors uh from the university doctors and he was handing them out and you know it, it made my you know like like i've i've heard from many people who've gone through addiction it makes it makes them feel normal when they take something like that like an oxy or xanax or whatever you know and and that's how he that's how he got hooked was just that the flood of pills around just like your son so you know some some people we we got slow I, I believe there's three things that need to be done, okay? You need a supply reduction, you need demand reduction, and you need harm reduction. You need all three of them. So when the pill mills were raging and pills were all over the street, the deaths went up. It's just like now. Fentanyl is cheap. It's all over. We got to reduce the supply. You know, I, I hate as soon as you say, oh, we got to stop it because most of it's coming from Mexico. We got to stop it. I ain't even going to say the word, but that's, you, you know, it's, it's about our kids. It, it shouldn't be a Republican or Democrat issue. <laughs> exactly. It should be a red, white and blue issue. Yeah. All kinds of kids are dying. Rich kids, poor kids. And unfortunately, matter, like yeah. I said, I've seen it with OxyContin. I'm going to take... X amount more to die before the tide turns. You know, that's so unfortunate. We're trying to speed it up. Yes, it is. It is. But I've seen it it before. I'm watching it now. But like I said, unless we have some corporate accountability with criminal prosecutions, it's going to happen again. Who knows what? But it will happen again. You know, 
We've seen that across the country with the lax jail sentences. What what happens? Crimes up all over, all over. You, you know, this ain't rocket science. You know. Yeah, it's 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 so sad, and and you know, it's so, and we have so many voices now that are trying to make awareness, which is wonderful. And you know, again, we just you know, as long as everyone can team up and and you know, spread their word. You know, and I, I, you know, I want to thank you. Um, you know, when I when I first you know uh, read your story, I was just amazed because you go back 21 years now. I mean, and it, it put me in my age when I was four, 15. Yeah. Let me put this in perspective, okay? So my son died when he was 18, September 22nd. He should have turned 40. Wow. My daughter at the time, who found Eddie, she was 15. She said, Dad, I just realized you were you were 37 when Eddie died. I'm 37 now. Wow. Yeah, that's it's 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 wow. It's crazy. You know, it's it, it's sad the state of events, the current state of events today. You know, for a couple just for like one or two years there, it started to go down and then now it mushroomed and like I said, with the fentanyl poisonings and the the supply is it's out of control and we we need a covid type response yeah yeah again I, you know Ed, I, I just i just want to thank you for for i mean the amount of tireless work you've done on behalf of so many families you know i i, I you know i understand a little piece of just how emotionally draining it is but for 21 years doing it and the amount of work you've done it does and and you know a lot of people you know going back even 10 years now, you get burned and you lose, you, you lose faith. And I, I'm, I'm right there, but there's all, there is still a chance that something can happen with the DOJ. And so please look me up on Facebook, Ed Bish, B-I-S-C-H. Look up Relatives Against Purdue Pharma. We're going to be emailing the DOJ again. We're just asking them, follow the evidence. Mara Healy, the attorney general of Massachusetts, said on public radio, she said, I have seen the evidence. And the guy asked her, well, do you think the DOJ should indict? She said, yes, I do. She says the states are not equipped to do it. It's going to take the Department of Justice. And what I say to them is, do your job. Yeah. Follow the money. Yeah. Do the job on, on behalf of the the millions of people who have been affected by this. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Ed, thank you so much. I, it's an absolute honor to to meet you, talk to you, hear your story, and again, thank you for for just I mean, truly at the bottom of my heart for everything that you and and your um, organization has done over these last twenty one years. And you're welcome. I do just want to plug. Dope Sick on Hulu one more time, which won two Emmys. They should have won more Emmys. But it won two Emmys. Michael Keaton, his best performance of his career. It was wonderful. And, uh, you know, Dope Sick, the book, and the new book, Raising Lazarus. And then if you want to learn beyond Purdue, get the book American Cartel. And, you know, you just read it and your jaw drops. And say, how are they not in prison? But we gotta keep on calling for justice. And agreed, I don't plan. Uh, agreed. 
Well, again, thank you. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate your time. Thanks a lot, Art. Thank you for listening to the Henry Zunkel podcast. Please like, subscribe, and leave us a review. If you would like to learn more about a nonprofit, please go to henryzunkel.org. As we say here at Henry Zunkel, you are loved, never judged.